Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming back to another episode of Recycler Secrets. Uh, Today with me is Chris Jolly. Chris Jolly is the head of recycling in store at MSU. Uh, Chris has been on campus here uh, for a long time, uh, originally as a student, and uh, came back as a, as a big man on campus here running this facility. So the MSU program collects about 30 million pounds of material a year and returns about $4 million in value to the university. Uh, they're in a pretty awesome building here with a lot of neat components that we're going to get into. But take a moment and, uh, and let's welcome Chris. And Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and something I haven't touched on there. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, you mentioned that I started as a student. I was actually the first student hired by the recycling program in 1990, I guess it was. Uh, been here a long time. I worked at the salvage yard, which it used to be. We were in an unheated warehouse and really small operation. I think we recycled about 100,000 pounds of paper. That was it at the time. I drove trucks. I managed sales. Um, then I kind of moved on for a couple of years worked in the private sector, came back as a temp, worked through the labor side of the business for a while, managed the surplus store, was a recycling education coordinator, and here I am today and managing all of those programs. That's fantastic. So MSU is kind of a beast in the college and university solid waste recycling programs. MSU operates their own fleet of trucks. They have a MRF. Uh, they have a biodigester uh, for food waste. They have traditional windrow composting. They've got an incinerator and power plant here on campus. They've got a huge resale operation that we'll dive into a little bit later. And of course, my favorite part's the bike recycling program, I'm digging that. Um, but let's kind of tackle each one of those kind of one-on-one. And let's start with the transportation uh, model that MSU uses. You guys have your own fleet of trucks. Uh, how many roughly? About a dozen. About a dozen trucks. And you're not only collecting recycling, but you're doing traditional solid waste and food waste as well, and all of the surplus materials, right? Correct. So talk us through the, the need for a college to have its own transportation arm and, and why that's become valuable to MSU. So I did actually some historical digging when you said this, and I was curious looking back, and have we always managed our own waste? And the answer is yes. We actually had incinerators inside a lot of our buildings at one time. And when that went away, we started hauling our own waste, and we've been doing that well, well past I've been here, over 30 years. Um, We've moved from just managing waste to now handling recycling and splitting that off to surplus as well. Um, The need to have our own fleet is all based on the diversity of materials that we get in. It gives us flexibility for athletic events, nights, weekends. And when we're here, I have crews here seven days a week at times and all times of the day. It's really about the diversity and be able to handle all the different streams and to experiment and try different things to divert more materials from the waste stream. And so if you were to seek out to the, the private industry to solve that for you, you would have a, a hard time finding people that want to do that night and weekend work and really the diversity of materials that you're collecting as well, right? Yeah, I'd also suspect we'd have to manage several different contracts. Um, 
everything from pallets by themselves to ink and toner. There's programs for all of these, but it would be several programs instead of just one comprehensive program, which really works for us because we, we receive revenue for some items that offset the cost of processing other items. Not really sure what that would look like in a different model. And at MSU, you guys have probably a, a one of the, the better uh, drop-off stations that I've seen at, at a college level in a long time. And, you know, I talk with people from different parts of the state that uh, sometimes identify things that aren't accepted in their community. And they go, oh, yeah, when I visit my daughter in Lansing at school, we drop that off at the MSU Re- Recycle Center. So, you know, you've got uh, just to the uh, outside of the Recycle Center building that we're sitting in, uh, a large bank of roll-off containers that accept a lot of different materials. Kind of walk us through what that program looks like and, and why it's there. Sure. It's funny that you said that. I was just at Whole Foods the other day, and I noticed they have a sign-up that says, for everything we don't take, please go visit MSU's drop-off center. Um, that's great. I'm wondering if they'll sponsor us somehow. Um, <laughs> we collect uh, cardboard, um, paper, newspaper, uh, mixed plastics. We separate milk jugs. We collect uh, books. A variety of different materials. We take polystyrene at our store, not at the drop-off center. Um, yeah, that's about 40% of our total volume that we process through our MRF. It's for both on-campus and off-campus folks. The The main reason, the driver behind why we built it is we wanted to have options for our off-campus students. There's about 40,000 students who live off-campus who at the time didn't have curbside or other recycling options. And they, a lot of times they live in multifamily housing, which is a real challenge for recycling. So we wanted to have options for them to recycle, um, and we couldn't keep the public out if we are going to have this drop-off center. We didn't want a person there to accept ID, check IDs, so we, we just opened it to the public, and, and we also collect glass, and at the time, we were one of the only places taking glass when we built it, so it really exploded for us locally. So you mentioned the store there real quick and, and how you accept poly, polystyrene at the store, styrofoam. Can residents bring other materials to the store, or is that only surplus off-campus that you're selling at the store? Do you you treat that a little bit like a goodwill? Our guidelines are we only take things from faculty, staff, and students. Alumni as well. Um, You have to bring in an ID, and we'll occasionally check the IDs, but we don't have a big problem with abuse for that. Um, We don't charge for anything except for uh, computer monitors and TVs are the only things that we charge for, and we take several items. Okay, so we'll circle back around to the store. Um, but let's talk about the MRF building itself. So you guys are sitting in a, a building here today that you built back in 2000, roughly. And in this building is not only LEED certified, but a pretty cool building that's got three different core aspects to it. Can you talk about those? Sure. We built the building in 2009. Um, the building is designed so the store is in front. It's a We have about 40,000 square feet dedicated to sales floor and sales floor storage and processing and then we have a MRF that's about 12,000 square feet and another 10,000 square feet of office spaces. Um, the idea is always about the highest and best use of materials, so we're always trying to push stuff through reuse first. Uh, that's our hallmark. That's actually why we're here, um, to help fund recycling. Um, yeah, that's that's about the building. Okay. So let's dive into the MRF here a second. So you guys built this MRF, and, and when we talk about a materials recovery facility, a, a processing center, or a MRF, you know, a lot of people identify that with, you know, fiber screens and optical sorters and eddy currents and all this automated equipment to, you know, downsort material into different uh, product categories. You've done a lot of that work on the front side with the drop-off with the source separation. But let's talk about how you guys actually operate the MRF and how it runs and, and what that equipment looks like here at MSU. 
Sure. Uh, I like to call it our mini MRF. We process about 9 million pounds of materials a year. We have a sort line and conveyor that takes things direct feed into a baler. We use that primarily for clean cardboard that is source separated out front, so there's very little sort cost. We basically have a Bobcat operator who loads that. And then we have a sort line as well with five different sorting stations, and we employ anywhere from 30 to 40 students every semester, and it's all MSU students to hand sort all, all the other materials. So when markets change and different things happen, as they have recently with mixed paper, we now sort mixed paper for value, and we're, we're generating a lot more revenue than we were before because we're sorting out all the office paper from our mixed stream. So it gives us the ability to adjust and adapt quickly. Um, we're right about at capacity for what the building was built for, for 40 hour work week. So um, things are going really smooth. And I think we've been affected less by the current crisis than other folks because of our ability to sort easily. And your, your workforce is a little different than a traditional publicly held MRF. Let's talk about that. Who makes up the workforce here at the MSU store in MRF? Sure. We have, right now we have about 130 employees total. We have 32 full-time regular employees. Uh, seasonally, we have anywhere from 10 to 15 temporary employees, full-time, what I would call full-time temporary employees. And then we have a 20, uh, 15 or 20 on-call employees, which a lot of times are students who work less than 29 hours or 19 hours a week. And then we employ anywhere from 50 to 60 students in a variety of positions across the, the, the program. So one of the things that this building was built for was education. Mm -hmm. And you host a lot of different events within this facility um, from regional collaborations throughout the schools to, you know, statewide collaborations with the coalitions uh, to, you know, people right out of, you know, municipalities here uh, coming in to learn about how different things are done. Can you talk about the education side of, of this building and, and why that was such a high focus? Sure. Um, it, we're a university, so we're a living learning lab. We have the ability to experiment and try different things and, and teach. Just this week, the last two days, we've had two different classes in where we'll bring in a dumpster full of trash and we'll dump it on the ground and they'll hand sort it all and we'll do a classroom lecture, lecture session and then share the result with, with them and the impact and, and look at what the diversion rate could be. Um, which allows them to then take it back to a real a real application in their classroom. We've got a couple capstone projects going on right now, one with bin sensors to look at notifying us when our bins are full, especially at event events to service. We've um, we hosted a, an event called Our Table last year that looked at food waste, uh, global food waste. Um, it just gives the ability to really connect, hands-on connect waste to the people and to learn about it and it's a it's a great service that we offer, um, and it's not just for us. We we host the Michigan Recycling Coalition is here today as part of their master MRM materials management recycling training, um, showing people what a MRF looks like, at least a mini MRF. Um, so yeah. So when you do those educations, you're bringing in a lot of you know I'll use a, a word heavy hitters is one I like to bring in. So when you said that our table one, I mean that was tied to. Jonathan Bloom, who authored American Wasteland. So, I mean, not only is it stuff that's happening here at campus, but you're bringing in, like most collegiate opportunities, you're bringing in people from the outside world, yeah. professors and authors, to help, you know, relay that message down and tie back into the heart of it. Yeah, and private businesses. Last year we hosted Patagonia here as part of their Warren Ware tour where they re they bring their mobile repair truck onto campus and, and ran a, a day-long repair session where they'll repair clothing and... People line up, and yeah, we bring in 
as many people as we can to talk about waste and diversion. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about food waste. So the campus brought in a biodigester five years ago now, I think it was, and you guys have been long, long before that experimenting with food waste, and you continue, like you said, learning living lab to kind of digest this through. Talk about what's going on on campus with food waste and, and what you've learned and what, and what you think's left there to be learned and you're taught. Yeah, um, right now we're diverting around 700,000 pounds of food waste a year through a variety of different programs. Everything's been an experiment for us. Um, some things worked, some things haven't. It's continuously evolving as we try to figure this out. I'd like to point out that the main thing we're trying to do is do some source reduction on the front end. We have a program called Clean Plates at State. Through our nine full-scale dining halls, we serve 2.8 million meals a year. Um, and we've, through doing these plate audits, we've been able to continuously decrease the amount of food waste that we're producing by doing simple things like, man, we're throwing away a third of a burrito half the time, so let's use smaller shelves. So we're only throwing out about three ounces per plate of food, but that's still about a half a million pounds of food waste a year. That's currently pretty much going down the carburetors and into the wastewater stream. That's about $1.8 million worth of food waste going down the drain. So we're looking at different ways of managing that, different ways of capturing that. We collect uh, mostly pre-consumer food waste out of our dining halls, uh, with one exception, and that's at Brody Hall, which has a food waste pulper that we piloted. We tried something different there. That's about 200,000 pounds a year, 250, and that's going to our anaerobic digester. We were taking other post-consumer food waste and pre-consumer food waste to the digester, but we were having challenges with uh, contamination, plastic film, uh, wreaks havoc on the pumps and grinders within the uh, digester. So we're currently taking all that stuff to an off-campus composter, and we're also investing in doing more composting on campus uh, and then also looking at maybe grinder technology or other things to return to the digester with some of the food. So it's it's a really learning every day. We have nine different dining halls. Everyone is designed differently. Some are on second floor, some are on first floor, some are a long way away from a loading dock. So how do you capture the food? How do you get it to the loading dock? How do you make it clean? Um, how do you move it from a loading dock to our building? Right now we use a cart system and we have to spray out and wash the carts and it doesn't smell awesome. And <laughs> it's a it's a fun process and we're just trying to figure it out. And it's it's been an evolving process for probably the last five, six years now we've really been into it deep. So in six years, what's the hardest lesson you've learned around food waste, do you think? Um, really, it's, I get back to the digester and, and this idea of contamination and education. You, know, you can have less than 1% contamination in, in your food, which isn't very much in a 20-yard roll-off. And it can be one or two plastic bags or trash bags that make it through there that can cause pretty extensive damage to a digester. So it's really trying to wrap around, wrap your head around what do we do with contamination? How do we keep stuff clean? Um, and how do you educate, you know, 600 new employees every year to eliminate contamination? It's It's been a real challenge, and, and we're starting to figure it out, I think. Well, in educating your students, I mean, you've got a, a large freshman class that comes in every year, and so let's talk a little bit about food waste education. What's that look like at Brody Hall? Brody, there's not a lot of forward-facing education. We, we let folks know what we're doing and what our impacts are. Most of our education is in the back of the hall, back of the dining halls, and just teaching folks how to sort and where things go. Um, that's the extent with that. We have, we're piloting different programs on campus. We have a, what we call our, our recycling. I'll put that in quotes. We have a bike 
two different bike routes that go around campus with trailers on them that collect uh, mostly coffee grounds and filters from different locations and all the coffee shops on campus. That material goes out to a separate compost facility we have. It's more of a research facility where we're doing vermicomposting, and then we compost the material and bring it back here to the surplus store and resell it with revenue going back into the program. That education is, is really your traditional bins and signs, and there's a little more tolerance for that system for contamination. So, Because you're touching, you're feeling every, every container there, you're touching and feeling yep. it. So the... What's the, what's the percentage that's going into the digester versus going to your your offsite composter? So right now we're doing about thirty percent to our digester and seventy percent. Well, thirty percent to the digester, sixty percent to off campus, and ten percent to this little research program we have going on. Okay. One of the neat things uh, about being a living learning lab as a university is you guys do a, a lot of white papers and a lot of uh, downstream materials that come from your projects. So, you know, if you go to the MSU's website, um, you know, and go to the news section of it, I mean, you can talk about any of these projects that are going on in campus, and they're relatively easy to do a little self-research and, and get some information on them, right? Yeah, you can find pretty much any project you ever want to think of. And and sometimes I forget this is where I'm at, and we, we have problems that face us and, and challenges, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've got 50,000 students I can reach out to and, and faculty. And, and the trick is we are so big, it's finding the right person to, to solve our issues. Right now we've been working on a project with these bin sensors to look at um, how do we have a system that tells us when we need to go out and empty our containers. You know, we have two guys who drive around once or twice a week and cl- just look and check bins. Or how do we handle things at football when we have to put out 600 extra bins? Do we want to go check those or do we want something to tell us when it's time to empty them? And that, that technology exists and there are plenty of private programs that you can buy into, but some of our challenges are unique. So our students get to figure that out. It's pretty exciting stuff. Right. So you get to build the solution right here at MSU. <laughs> Absolutely. Where it makes sense. Yeah. Where it makes sense. So MSU, we talked a little bit about your store. This is a huge topic. And so we're going to bite into this like an elephant here, one chunk at a time. Um, so let's start with assuming that the people that are listening to this are, you know, either not from Michigan or, or not familiar with the MSU uh, store at all. And let's kind of talk about, you know, what the store is first, and then let's dig into a couple of sub departments. So why don't you give me what the store is first and kind of broad brush and then we'll dig into some of the sub-compartments. Yeah, if you look at our model, we're, we really invested in the highest and best use model of disposition, and we start with reuse. Um, we don't have a lot of say in source reduction on campus. We don't buy this stuff. We just get it. So what do we do? We really focus on that reuse component, and, and that's where the value is. So our store operates. We're open five days a week. Our hours are a little funny. Uh, we have an online store. We sell on Amazon. We sell on eBay. We try to promote reuse on campus as much as possible to try to get departments to repurpose things. We sell everything you can ever imagine. I think in 20 years of doing that piece of the business, the only thing I haven't sold is an airplane and maybe a helicopter. I've sold boats. I've sold a train engine. Um, we sell compost. We sell bricks. We sell, I mean, we're, we're a city. We sell everything you could ever imagine at times. So it's it's really exciting. Um, if you want to do a little historical perspective, when we really started investing in our surplus store back in 1998, it was a $300,000 year business. Um, it is now a $3.5 million year business. Um, and that was so successful that that's one of the reasons why this facility got built is they decided, hey, if you can sell bricks from a construction project for $70 a piece, can you also generate revenue off of recycling to help make this business case work for us? 
So here we are today, and it's working really well for us. So within the store, you know, digging into some of the sub-departments, uh, of course, my favorite is your bike program. You've <laughs> got a, a wicked fun bike program here. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. We operate a bike shop on Central Campus. It's in Bessie Hall. It's in the basement. If you were ever on campus, say, 20 years ago or so, it's where the old canoe livery was, where you could rent canoes. The bike shop sells new bikes. They lease bikes. Um, they repair bikes. And it's, it's mainly geared towards MSU students and faculty and staff, but we also cater to visitors. Um, we do about 5,000 services a year. We fix a lot of flats. Uh, we also sell new used bikes as well. We, we For some reason, we have about five fifteen hundred 1,500 impounded bikes a year that just get abandoned and left on campus. Um, contrary to popular belief, we do not steal them. They're abandoned, and occasionally I, I suspect some of them get picked up that people wanted. Um, <laughs> we do end up returning some, but they end up coming here after the police are done with them, and we resell those as well. Some of them re we refurbish. Some of them are beyond the ability to refurbish, and we sell them as scrap or parts and we try to find the most value out of them we can. I know in a, a lot of the campuses, after the students move out at the end of the year, you know, any bike that's left on campus, you know, campus security goes around and tags them. Mm -hmm. And then a week later, they go back around and they collect them all. Yep. If the tag's not removed and someone hasn't started using it, it means it was abandoned. And then they sit on them for 30 days. And the, if you're the owner, you have 30 days to respond and come and pick them up or they end up here. Right. Yep. And so the bike program itself, and, and I didn't give you this kind of forewarning on this, but what's that program generate a year? Um, it's somewhere between two to three hundred thousand um, dollars. We're trying to become the only self-sustaining campus bike shop in the country, outside of California. You know, I think University of Cal Berkeley has a profitable bike shop. We do not receive any general fund allocation, so we are self-sustaining. Right now, surplus is uh, subsidizing, for lack of a better word, some aspects of that. But I'm confident, um, even though we have five months a year where it's difficult to ride bikes, unless you're really adventurous, that we can be profitable. But it's uh, yeah, two hundred dollars to $300,000 a year on any given year. Okay. And then the MSU store, like you said, uh, touches everything that comes off campus. And so that means there's a lot of electronic equipment that comes through your facility in terms of, you know, traditional electronics as we think of it, televisions, computers, printers, fax machines, but then a lot of the oddity stuff too. I mean, you get a lot of lab equipment, you get a lot of, you know, everything that comes out of this mini city here uh, that MSU is, you get. So tell us a little bit about the traditional e-waste recycling program that you're doing here on campus. Sure. Anything, basically anything electronic, anything with a cord, we treat as e-waste, even though by law it's not, but we treat it that way. So we certainly try to sell everything that we can. We repurpose everything. And if we can't, um, we'll do some disassembly. We'll con we contract with a private recycler to handle a lot of our e-waste recycling piece. We're also responsible, which a lot of people don't know, we're responsible for all data secure, end-of-life data security for campus. And if you think about where that's gone in the last 20 years and where it's going, I, I joke around about this, but I bet you in 10 years, the chair you're sitting in will collect biome biometric data on you. And we're going to have to figure out how to erase data off a chair. I mean, we're already doing this. We, we just got a bunch of treadmills in and people swipe their card. It's got personal information on it. We've got to figure out how to get rid of that. So we don't want grades. We don't want personal information falling into people's hands. Um, but the answer isn't to just recycle everything and get rid of it. It still has value. It still has usable life. And that's what we really focus on is how do we get the data off on it and how do we still repurpose it and use it? So if you talk about computers, we repurpose probably 40 to 50% of what we get in. 50% um, of it's just too old and, and doesn't have a lot of value. 
Um, we erase all the data on it. We use what used to be DOD doesn't certify anything anymore, the Department of Defense, but we exceed what their threshold used to be um, in data security. We actually had Fox News show up and buy a computer from us and take it to a data recovery specialist to try to do an expose on us once, and they failed, which was really comforting because <laughs> it was my boss's computer. I don't know how that worked out for odds, but that's how it happened. But we, again, everything from campus comes here, from phones to thumb drives to laptops to iPads. And yeah. It's, you're it's a right. big responsibility. Everything's getting you know a digital footprint to it now, yeah. and so you're right. I mean, you're going to have self-adjusting chairs at some point in time that, you know, in our lifetime that you're going to sit into it and somehow it's going to recognize who you are and, and put it to your favorite specs. So so that, that's one of the interesting ways our, our business has changed over the years because part of what the surplus store does is a portion of our revenue from the items that we sell go back to the MSU departments who originally purchased that. We've really had to adapt that model for electronic waste because that that is a cost now in some areas. We do not pass that cost on to the campus, which is one of the great things about our surplus store. None of our departments on campus pay for any of this. They submit a request, and we go pick it all up. And if it's junk, we don't want them to make the determination of what's junk and what's not. You just send it to us. Let us make the call. That, And they're not getting charged for e-waste at this time, which is not what happens on a lot of other campuses. Um, and we're able to generate a small profit. We're also able to do some social good. We don't just have a return trade-in policy like a lot of other universities or corporate companies where they'll buy a computer from Dell and within four years they return it to Dell, Dell refurbishes it and then redistributes it who knows where. Um, we try to keep everything local and I think that has a big impact on the local area that we're, we repurpose all these IT assets within Lansing, within Michigan, trying to keep things close to home. Right. And so I know on a lot of campuses, and you probably know this better than I do, there's, you know, those departments instead of having a, a resource like MSU has with the ReStore, there's a lot of times that students walk away with those things where they go, oh, we're going to scrap out this piece of technology. And Jimmy, the student, goes, ooh, I could use that in my home lab. And the professor goes, eh, all right, whatever. And so you, you, you see a lot of that, do you not? Uh, we still, you know, there's times it happens. It's not just students. It's faculty and staff. If they, you know, once people make this determination that it's junk, then all of a sudden it's free. Well, it's still MSU property. It's still university property. And... I think anybody who's ever gone to a garage sale or watch flea market flip or antiques roadshow knows that there's a lot of value in stuff that people have no idea. I mean, the best example, one of my favorite examples are is we've taken from construction projects. They'll take it down and I'll say, hey, can I get a stack of bricks from that building? Well, I wouldn't. It's not worth you cleaning them up or everything else. Don't clean them up. Just put them in a pile. I'll come pick them up. And then we advertise it. Hey, you want a brick from this building that maybe you had classes in 40 years ago, and here's, here's a brick for $25, and they sell like hotcakes. And everything has value to somebody somewhere. I often don't know why, and I never ask, but it's amazing what people will buy and what they're interested in. And that's, that's the beauty of our store, and that's the beauty of repurposing, because those bricks, there is, a, there is a reuse option, there is a recycling option for those bricks, but if we can reuse it and it has value to somebody else other than getting ground up and put in road base or something else, it's a good story to tell, and it's fun. Right. You know, in, in that same mindset, um, MSU and a lot of other campuses across the country have really embraced this live-edge wood thing that's going on here, and, and I know that you guys have have done some big programs with that in the last three years. Um, you know, when trees are coming down somewhere on campus, you're taking that wood and, and harvesting it here on campus and, you know, building it back into something that has a memory for someone. And, you know, 
hey, you sat on this tree outside of Brody Hall 30 years ago. How would you like to have a desk out of it today? So talk about that a, a minute is because that falls under your, half under you because you guys sell it and half under the forestry department, doesn't it not? Yeah, so that falls in those academic partnerships that we do. Um, we were taking our trees that we would take down on campus for most of them are diseased or damaged or some other reason. Sometimes they're taken down for construction. Uh, those trees were, were getting grind, ground up at one point and put into our power plant as a bio offset for our coal that we were burning. Um, a few years ago, we moved from coal to natural gas, so we were no longer burning coal in our power plant, and subsequently we're no longer burning trees. Um, so now we're taking those trees, and the Department of Forestry, the Surplus Store, uh, Campus Sustainability, and Landscape Services partnered to take those trees and turn them into furniture and other keepsakes, and then the revenue from those sales are going to go back into campus beautification and planting more trees. Um, we s we're at about $100,000 a year in sales on that stuff right now. We're still trying to figure out our market. Um, we're a little different. There's another school, Penn State, who does something similar. They have the Penn State Elms Collection. They're selling high-dollar-value items. Our market doesn't seem to sustain that, so we're, we're, we're finding other avenues for smaller things. And then also trying to reuse more wood on campus in our buildings, in furniture on campus. The table we're sitting at right now was built out of a tree off campus. It's pretty cool. Um, so, and I think that's actually more sustainable if we can reuse these trees on campus and, and ourselves. Plus, again, if you're an MSU alumnus or you know somebody who needs something, we certainly have it for you. So MSU Shadows has been very, very productive for us, and it's a, another cool example of how we reuse things on campus. So for someone who's not familiar with that, how are they going to find that? Is there a URL for that, Chris? Uh, MSUshadows.com. Nice. A little yeah. self-plug there. Thanks. Dude, no worries. The, you know, and in, in I saw a project you did, shoot, that had to be two years ago now. You took a shipping crate that you had some product come in, flipped it upside down, threw some casters on the bottom, put a live edge to the top of it, used it for four or five events, and then marketed it out as a bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that actually was the impetus for a new initiative we have. We have the um, Spartan Upcycle Creative Reuse Program. It's another mini store within our surplus operation and really trying to show folks what they can do and how they can remanufacture things. We started out by doing kits and showing, you know, here's how you make some paper flowers. And we'd put all the kits together for them and all the customers kept saying, I don't want to make it myself. Can I just buy yours? So we're starting to make things, you know, using students, using our own staff to, to develop more. We built this display for this conference that you mentioned and we ended up flipping it for $600. It was a free crate. We found some casters on our sales floor. We paid a couple hundred dollars to get the live edge top made on it, but it was certainly a, a revenue piece for us where a lot of times you'll make displays for these trade shows and whatnot and then they're trash afterwards. Um, so it worked for us. Um, hopefully the person who bought it is still using it and, and it's, I, again, I don't usually ask what people are going to do with things, so I don't know where it ended up, but um, that's one example of many things like that we're able to do. So, um, Creative re reuse, I think, is the future of our program and where we're going and how we're, we're going to try to, again, get more value out of materials. We're trying to pull more and more materials out of our MRF, plastic and different things. Again, if you know, cardboard boxes are a perfect example. You know, Cardboard we're getting maybe a penny a box for in the recycling market. If you are ever moving and you go to the store to buy cardboard boxes, so how do we figure out how to get those to the store and maybe sell them for a quarter a piece or 50 cents a piece. How do we make that profitable? And again, what's the highest and best use is always going to be reusing the boxes or opposed to selling it. So absolutely, those are those fun stories. So like all universities, your move in, move out time is crazy here at MSU. And you pull in a, a ton of material for that. 
Talk us through how much of that material comes the that you're able to divert to the MSU store and reallocate back into the community or the next class of students, um, you know, versus putting it into a landfill, what happens at a lot of college campuses. Yeah, two totally different programs, which is how everything works. And we have all of our residence halls are a little bit different in design. So we have to cater our programming and collections to where we're at at the time. Move-in is primarily cardboard and polystyrene, you know, anywhere between two to 300 pounds of cardboard in less than a week. Um, that's that's a little easier to manage than move out because um, there isn't a lot of trash at move in. Move out is certainly a challenge because most of our move out happens over two days now. And when you're moving 15 to 17,000 people off campus in two days, it's really hard to, number one, advertise to them and, and market how to do it. I think we have a great program. We still only divert between 30 to 40%. So there's about a million pounds of trash in about a two to three week period total of move out that we count. Most of that happens, at least half of that happens in two days. Uh, a lot of that material ends up at our store. Uh, we bring it back. So we'll bring back household goods. We bring back futons, which are disposable. I didn't know if you know that, but futons are apparently disposable now. So we get a lot of futons. We get seventy to 80,000 pounds of carpet. So carpet, single-use carpet. Who would have thought? Um, bring all of that stuff back here. E-waste. Um, we collect clothing. We collect food for donations. Um household cleaners for donations so it's about 300,000 pounds of stuff which is a lot of stuff that we bring back here and sell through the store uh, we've been able to eliminate what we charged housing to provide that service of collection over the years we now do it for free because we're able to generate enough revenue from the sale of the goods to pay for our collection cost in time and that's a two 12-hour days on a Thursday and Friday, and then we also come in on a Saturday and Sunday, so I have to pay all that overtime to be able to manage it. But it's awesome because it brings my team together. It really connects the reuse team to the collections team, and then so it's 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 a fun experience. So you said two things there that I kind of picked up on, uh, food for donation and cleaning materials for donation. So you're going back out to the community, and, you know, traditionally, you know, I think about the, the last time I moved one of my students out of an apartment or one of my, my children out of an apartment, I should say. You know, there was a... A bunch of food that came home with me and mm -hmm. depending on where you're going in the country that may not be something that's desirable for you so that's got to go somewhere and I know it's the the unopened stuff that you're really reclaiming you know that half a bag of pop-tarts really isn't going to do it but uh, you know if they've got box goods or canned goods that you know they haven't opened you're bringing that then to a local food shelter yeah um, we have a campus we have a, a sustainability group within our residence hall associate group uh, run by Carly Yonsity. They, they do pretty much everything on their own as far as marketing and collection. So they collect all the food, actually, and put this together and do an awesome job. I think they collected a, close to four to 5,000 pounds of food that they donated just for move out last year. But they also donate 90,000 pounds a year of perishable foods from the residence halls on top of that. So our, our giving from residence halls. And again, this is all them. They do an awesome job. I try to support it as much as I can as far as collection and moving stuff around and storing. But they do an amazing job and are really invested in it. So if you think about our campus, one thing I think is important to point out, because we have so many students who live on campus, our residence halls and apartments produce 40 to 45% of our total waste stream for the entire campus. So they have to have their own program and programming to be able to make this work, and they do a great job. But again, it is a hard thing to wrap your heads around to get a student who lives on the 12th floor of a residence hall to bring their recycling downstairs to the first floor or to... How do we do that when you walk by a trash chute or something else where it's easier for this? How those buildings were designed, you know, 50, 40 years ago. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun challenge to have, but they do a great job addressing it. Okay. 
So you touched a little bit about the incinerator. At one point in time, you guys diverted a bunch of different things to the incinerator, and that's with the natural gas conversion. That's pretty much gone now, isn't it? Yeah, there's, so there's a couple different things there. Our power plant was only coal. We did some biofuel with, with wood chips. That's all we've ever really burned in our power plant. We do have another incinerator on campus, but that's primarily a pathological incinerator. So that's class one through five pharmaceuticals, animal carcasses, and other bio waste. Uh, that's still going there. Um, but our power plant itself has never really burned anything besides um, wood chips, basically, and coal. So with that second incinerator, are you doing a large drugs take-back program here on campus? Only, man- you- only manage our own through our own pharmacy and our own labs. Okay. We're not taking stuff from off-campus okay. at all. all right. so, how, so how are you helping students deal with prescriptions and other things of that nature? At times, we've had a- occasional collections at in the residence halls, but really hasn't surfaced as a big issue or a big need on campus. I don't know if it's there year-round, but there is a collection point at our police station to okay. drop off as well. Young and healthy kids don't need a lot of meds, right? (laughs) So MSU is involved in a lot of different organizations. You know, tell us what are the important ones to you in in your department here on campus. I know you're part of the the Michigan Recycling Coalition, but, I mean, there's a lot more national organizations and university-specific organizations that you guys are involved in. Kind of rattle off a few of those that are important to you. Sure. There's a College and University Recycling Coalition. I'm a board member for that organization. Um, It's really changed and adapted over the years. Our college group is kind of fractioned off into the zero wasters, just recycling, and now there's the University Surplus Property Association. So it's it's becoming harder and harder because these jobs have changed so much over the last 20 years. Um, College and University Recycling Coalition does an annual workshop, they do six to eight, about six webinars a year just to help recyclers and campuses know what to do. There's also the University Property Asso- Surplus Property Association. That's a once-a-year annual conference. It's great if you want to start a surplus business or need to learn more about how to manage things. It's an awesome education tool. Um, those would be the big two off-campus. And you mentioned Michigan Recy- Recycling Coalition, and that's a huge plug for us. Um, the value they bring in networking opportunities to help us connect with private business, other municipalities, to learn best practices, to find markets for materials. It's really difficult to measure how important that is to our program. Right. I mean, those organizations exist in, in every state. I mean, you know, whether it's California or the Northeast uh, Recycling Coalition. So, you know, uh, when I talk with people at events and seminars, I always, you know, drive that point home that, Part of learning our industry is really networking and, and finding people that have different ideas that sometimes we haven't even thought about and, you know, brings those, you know, to us at a conference or in a, a networking lunch. And, you know, one of the ones that I thought of a, a little while ago in a different conversation is, and we talked with Nick Carlson at Goodwill, is the curbside textiles. I mean, mm-hmm. you guys do a ton of textiles through the store, you know, old sporting equipment and stuff that's coming out of the the student body. And, you know, even though that you're doing a large percentage of that, there's still a big chunk of that that's never seen here that ends up in the the waste stream. So it's, you know, there's always different ways to collect things and try to convince people that, yeah, you know, I don't want to get rid of that T-shirt because I think it's horrible and, you know, no one can use it. But there is that ragging market out there or that regrind for different reuse somewhere. So don't throw it in the landfill. Let's let's convince you to use it somewhere. Yeah, we don't actively try to get clothing in other than that move out and we get 
30 to 40,000 pounds a year of clothing. Right. Are, are you bourbon. dealing with that at the store then, or you push we, a lot of that out to the, the goodwills of the world? We sort everything in the store. We, we market the stuff through the store. Um, it's priced as is on the, on the, at the store and on our website for some things. And then we do a big clothing by the pound sale um, once a month. And then the remaining ends up going to a recycler, which, you know, is always a challenge to find a clothing recycler these days. And, you know, those markets seem to be changing and ever evolving and really understanding where your material is going is another big challenge for a lot of these materials, especially today. Right. <laughs> so you just mentioned something there that I want to kind of drill down on. The markets are really ever changing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether we're talking about paper or cardboard or textiles or electronics, there is a, a responsibility as the head of the department to kind of keep your, keep you or your member of your staff with a finger on the pulse there looking at, you know, where are the other places that we can go? What can we do with this? What's, what's that look like at MSU? So that's why those conferences and, and different professional organizations we're a part of are, make a big impact because we can identify best practices. We can kind of do reference checks with other folks. Uh, e-waste is an easy one for us because there are plenty of third-party verification companies out there, and we just require in our contract that you have one of three different groups. And then we actually also do, with our current e-waste vendor, we actually do site visits to see where our stuff is going and making sure what's ha- what they say is happening is really happening. That's a lot harder, right, with plastics, for example, right now. You have to put a lot of trust in your broker or your vendor to make sure things are actually ending up where they say they are. Are they really getting recycled? Because there's some grades of plastic currently that we're paying more than what it would cost a landfill. There's a level of trust there, and and there isn't as much of a third-party verification of where this stuff is going. So you just have to do your due diligence. There's a level of trust there that you have to have, reference checks, keep your ears kind of to the ground and hear what's going on and what doesn't seem right, and somewhat is trusting your instincts a little bit too, I think. (laughs) It's It's kind of scary at times. You know, I, I come across that from time to time when I talk to different people throughout the country where they say, oh, yeah, we're using so-and-so to do our e-waste, and they're free. And you go, free? Huh. Are they certified? What are they doing with it? Have you ever been there? And, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you talk about due diligence, you know, I really want to drive home, that you, you got to put your eyes on stuff. I mean, Google Maps will take you damn near anywhere today, right? So okay. if someone says, oh, I... I'm doing an e-waste facility at 123 Fifth Street. Boy, Google Maps will give you a street view and an aerial view of that property within the last two years, typically. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to physically go to California to see it, but you can determine really quickly if that's a UPS mailbox store or if that's an actual business. And, and that due diligence, whether it's with a broker or whether it's with an end-use processor, I think is becoming more and more critical in the way that we do business. Do you agree with that? Oh, I certainly agree. Um, It's interesting because we keep talking about internally, do we want to continue to use brokers or do we want to try to market our own materials? Um, I don't think we're ready to market our own materials yet because we don't have those relationships built. Um, Yeah, I certainly agree with that as a challenge. It's, again, scary time. I remember when I started in the industry, when we built our MRF, having that at that time, our current broker come in and visit and would just say, oh, just you can just throw anything in the middle of a bale and we'll get rid of it and make money. And I always thought that was wrong. And we ended up moving away from that broker eventually. Um, it's really, it's just, it's a fascinating how things have changed. And then you look at the current markets and, and what's going on and contamination. And that was the mindset 10, 15 years ago, right? Or five years ago. It's not the mindset anymore. Uh, it's changing. And, and 
it's again important to trust your judgment and make changes where they need to be and we're in a better place because we did that and we found brokers that i hope we can trust <laughs> right and i mean when you talk about that that broker mentality you know a lot of the single stream fully automated materials recovery facilities in MRFs were built on a two to seven percent contamination run rate so when they built that facility they knew that it was going to produce some contamination on the backside and that was acceptable mm-hmm. at that point in time to the industry and you know, it kind of got us down that road that we're at today where we've pulled that restriction back to half a percent. And, you know, facilities like yours went, eh, whatever, we're already doing that. And facilities that were run in a different way went, ooh, this is a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that has economy of scales. You know, you look at the the MRF in Las Vegas that's running 70 tons an hour versus the MRF in Grand Rapids, Michigan that's running 18 tons an hour. You know, there's a, a different economy of scale there in, in oh, yeah. how each of those facilities are even compared to yours. So, yeah, I think, you know, we continue to look at diligence amongst ourselves and self-policing. But, you know, part of this is, you know, educating people to do the right thing on a regular basis. And, and I mean, MSU is really doing that. I mean, they're checking all the boxes, right? Yeah. And one of the things I'm struggling with right now is there's a big push. And I think you've probably seen it in the news and it's to standardize contaminate what's contamination what is recyclable and how do you do that in a world where you know 50 percent of what that would reduce our recycling rate by probably 50 percent of what it is today because we accept a much broader range of materials so plastic film being a primary one we collect plastic film and we have a market for it that would go away in this model right so how do you manage that how do we all keep our you know how do you set lofty goals and and standardize at the same time how do we do that we had a posting not too long ago, just a Facebook post about recycling and showing an example of what we do. And a friend of mine who runs a local uh, state MRF, a municipal MRF, made a comment. It's great that MSU does that, but I hope you're educating people that we don't do that in our community. It's like, what does that look like? How do I make this look? How do we, how do we help each other be successful? And that's that's a really a fascinating time to be in this for me. Well, and and that's definitely a challenge as you look at this on a on a United States level, right? So the internet has provided us instant access to any information we want anywhere at any time. Mm-hmm. We're all walking around with these mobile computers in our pockets that will give us, you know, not only the internet, but YouTube, you know, podcasts, uh, radio, anything that we want, we can grab. And, you know, part of it is it, it you lose the fun of being able to tell a joke in a bar anymore because everyone always knows the outcome because they can find it. <laughs> but the other side of that is... You have people that are coming from MSU and then they move to Detroit right. and they're like, well, we did that at MSU. Why can't we do that here? Right. And it's all about infrastructure and capabilities and, you know, the, the source separation that you do here at the Recycle Center at the drop-off gives you a tremendous amount of capabilities that you can run that container in and, and bail it right out of that container and and store that bale and market that utility or that material that you could never do in a traditional curbside collected program or an industrial collected program. And it's hard sometimes to get Joe Public to understand that, yeah. right? So philosophically, though, do I keep doing it, right? So I, I have a boss who would ask this question once a year, what keeps you up at night? That's one of the things that keeps me up at night. We're doing great things for MSU, but am I doing more harm than good in the broader sense? by collecting all these extra things. I don't think so, but 
at the same point, it's a hard story to sell. And it's a, it's a very deep thing to think about and to talk about. And it's certainly a challenge. Well, I think you're painting a picture on possibilities though, right? Right. right. So you're saying, yeah, we're a living learning lab as, as you tagged it in the beginning here. We can do things that, you know, City of Lansing is never going to do. Right. And we can do that because... A, we can send out a message to our core internal body of Spartans and say, hey, listen, we want you to do this. And like anywhere else, you're going to have a certain number of people who respond to that call of action and do what you want them to do. And you'll be able to produce a result from that. Yep. You know, the general Joe public, when you put that call of action out as the city of Lansing, you know, just using that as an example, because that's where you are today, you know, you look at the water bill. How many people look at the announcement, the announcements in their water bill? No one. Right. You know, less than less than direct mail, so an eighth of one percent. You know, some ridiculous number like that. You go, oh, so we use the city's social media. How many people look at that post? Eh. It's dismal at best. But when you run, you know, a challenge or a campaign here on campus, it draws more eyes, draws more attention, and students are naturally competitive. Yeah, I, I just looked at this number last week. We had close to a million engagements in social media last year. We have 22,000 followers across our different pieces. So we have a very, a very engaged customer base. And, and no part of that is because we have such a comprehensive program. I get to tell so many stories where I can tie different things together. Um, it and, and again, you're in, you're in a university environment where people are curious in any way. So it works really well for us. And, and I, I certainly think we use surplus to our advantage to promote recycling um, and vice versa. It, it's a really good system to have to communicate, get engagement from folks. Um, again, I still can't get past this. Am I doing more harm for my municipal friends than good? But I think we're doing, we are doing more good because we're also finding sustainable markets for these materials, which then eventually the municipalities might be able to use us for a model to say, hey, we can do this too. I mean, I've already shown this with, I used the brick example earlier. Now, whenever we tear down a building on campus, somebody's always calling me saying, hey, I want to keep these bricks and all the money needs to go to this scholarship or something else. And before you were just willing to throw it all away. Now I have to give you all the money. <laughs> so once you build something that's sustainable and good, other folks will come along. And so somebody has to do it somewhere. I just have to figure out how to tell all those students, hey, when you move home, just know you might not be able to do what you do here. Right. You know, because I, th I certainly think that's an important message to share. It's just the how, because you can only say so much to people. And have it sink in. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's the advantage of doing our waste sorts and having our classrooms come in and connecting that education piece is we can share that information with them then. I've had, I have folks here, once they work here, who think that every student at MSU should have to do a waste sort and work on a sort line for a couple hours because it changes your outlook on waste and what we do. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, we certainly have, you know, I think I have almost a dozen classes a year that comes through. So we're making our small little dent. Well, and I'm sure that, you know, as a university, I mean, you've got a lot of electronic resources available to you in terms of, you know, audio and video production capabilities. And, you know, I've seen come of, uh, if you're not a friend of Chris Jolly on Facebook um, or Instagram, follow him because they play a lot of good practical jokes on each other here at the <laughs> campus. And, and those show up from time to time. So, and even the quality on those practical joke videos are better than half the videos you see on YouTube. <laughs> So, but the reality of that is there is a, a ton of opportunities for you to, 
digitize that learning and put that across your campus as, you know, uh, an evergreen learning module that people can see and, you know, they can pick up on it, whether it's alumni that's looking back or it's a student looking to come to MSU or it's a current student that's here, right? Right. Um, yeah, don't give me a box of bowling pins and an air horn. We'll see what I can do with that. Um, <laughs> So as far as resources, uh, it's not as, there are a lot out there. And again, we're just such a big campus. It's sometimes it's hard to find all the right resources and the right people. Um, when I was doing this compost project, for example, I was working on this for two or three years. And then you come across a faculty member who's been doing the same research for 10 years before that. And we didn't even know each other existed. And boy, if we were talking to each other the last three years, we could have made a lot more headway on this. So that's, Honestly, one of our bigger challenges is we're almost too big uh, at times to connect all of our resources and find out what's available. Where one department may charge me $1,000 a minute to make a video, I can find another one who would be happy to do it for free. So where do you find those resources and how do you find them in such a big place right. and, and big campus? Like you said, it's a city. It's a city, yeah. Right. So Chris, before we uh, end our time together here, you know, like you said, what besides am I doing more harm than good? What are the things that are keeping you up at night here? What are your what are your big challenges and what are your big opportunities that you're seeing, you know, in um, the near to soon future? Because I run an operation, safety is big. I mean, we, we you asked earlier about justifications kind of for running our own fleet. Same thing with running our own processing facility. We're using students, MSU students who parents send here and we're our job is to keep them safe. And to teach, and I mean, you see the news, MRF fires. I mean, there were several hundred last year. We've had two in our nine years. Um, that keeps me up at night, very, very much so. I, I, I worry about the safety. We operate really heavy equipment. I think the, the waste and recycling business is something like the fourth or the sixth most dangerous business in the country. Um, yeah, that safety and teaching safety really keeps me up at night. Um, the other piece is, is how do we develop more domestic manufacturing and more domestic uses for our goods so we don't have to ship them overseas. So when I worry about my brokers and where they're sending stuff, it's a little easier to know because we're more of that staying domestic, not trying to find other avenues. And those are the big things. I, I really want to know where all my recycling is going. But in fairness, even to a plastics broker, to have them look, you know, how many times that mixed plastic I send out gets separated and sorted and for even them to track all their downstreams or where they're going is, is right now, I think, almost an unrealistic expectation at times. Um, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. What's the next big project? I mean, food waste was a big check mark that you're still developing, but what's the next big one? So looking at organics comprehensively, not just food waste. Um, we do a waste stream analysis. We use those classroom waste sorts we do actually to do that for us. And still, we have about 10 to 11 million pounds of waste on campus a year. Th over 30% of that, almost 35% of that is organic waste. Um, and that's coffee grounds, filters, paper towel, uh, food waste from residence halls, not, not the kitchens themselves, but in your rooms. Um, all different sorts of that. Event waste. Um, you look at a football stadium, right? And we really need to convert our football stadium over to all compostable serviceware. Nobody in Lansing really wants that. Um, they want food. Um, and they don't want all the paper goods and other things. So we, we, we really need to develop a solution on campus to be able to do that all. Recycling at stadiums and trying to have a bin for trash and a bin for recycling, despite no matter how good we label it, that's not what's on people's minds as they're walking out of there. You know, just a few things of nacho cheese or pop in a recycling bin, especially today when contamination is such an issue, can really ruin our recycling. So 
looking at moving all of our football stadium to almost 100% compostable where is, is I think, the big future for us. Okay. Chris, I really want to thank you for taking the time out today to, to sit down with me and, and give the folks at home, you know, some of your secrets and some of the, the great things that you're doing here at MSU as a, a learning living lab, as you called it. I mean, I love that. I love that tagline, and, and I hope you continue to use that. You know, before we part ways, let's tell the folks at home what's the best way to get a hold of you. Uh, sure, msusurplusstore.com or recycle.msu.edu are our websites. Um, you can find me on either one of them. Uh, those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me at any time. And if not me, they'll direct you to the right place because I have a great team of folks around me that can answer pretty much any question. Right. And uh, like I said, anything that you need to know about MSU can be found on their website. Uh, there's tons of white papers. There's tons of discussions about their digester and their food waste programs. There's tons of conversations about the MSU store and what makes that successful. And, you know, you can take virtual tours of almost all of this stuff uh, through the MSU website. And uh, remember, folks, Google's your friend. Thanks again for joining us today. And keep your earballs on me and your eyeballs on the road ahead. And we'll see you next time.